You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. This is episode 50. That is uh, half of a hundred, you guys. That's amazing. Thanks for being with me. If you're looking for more resources, just before we get started, by the way, more resources, more ideas, more tips, head on over to my mailing list. That's on my website. That's on the link in the show notes to sign up for the mailing list. And I will send over plenty of resources, plenty of tips, plenty of ideas. If you're on this journey, healing your relationship with food and just like sort of self-growth. Today's episode is with Mia Kwan. Mia is amazing. She is an anti-diet dietitian. So she has a master of public health and nutrition science, and she works in two places. She has her practice that's an online program. Her signature program is called Body Respect. She has helped at this point hundreds of women break the cycle of food guilt and body shame, work toward food freedom and body appreciation. And then she's also part of nutrition faculty at Seattle Pacific University. She has such cool ideas and is a really big anti-dietitian in this space. So you can definitely find out more of her stuff on Instagram at foodbody.peace, on her website, foodbodypeace. She has done lectures in all different venues, all different topics. She's just like really a big freaking deal. So I am honored to have her here today. We're talking about self-compassion. And I'll say this in the actual episode, but I love that the two of us are talking about self-compassion because we are the most direct, no-nonsense, no-mushy, no-softy women in the world, probably. Okay, slight exaggeration, but you know what I mean. So I love that we're talking about this topic from a very different perspective. It's not, oh, you have to love yourself more. You have to increase more positivity. Oh, more affirmations. Ugh, gross, please. Actually, that's not true. If that works for you, then great. But if you're anything like the two of us, totally not gonna work for you. So this is coming at it from a very, very different perspective, how it is so important for your health, for your mental health, medical health, to incorporate self-compassion in how to actually do that. So let's just jump right in. Hello, Mia. I'm so excited to do this and I'm so excited to have you. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Yeah. So, I mean, we're both anti-diet people. You're a dietitian. I'm a therapist. We do the intuitive eating thing. It's sort of what we preach on the podcast. Definitely not a new thing. What we're talking about today is self-compassion, maybe a little bit of self-care, but what is self-compassion? All that stuff. First of all, I love that we're talking about that because you and I are probably the last people to sort of <laughs> preach this from the mountain types, mountaintop. So I love that because I don't know about you, but if somebody who's like all mushy gushy says, oh, you should have self-compassion for yourself, I would be like, oh my God, I roll gross, move on. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> That's just funny because I think there's a lot of 
First of all, absolutely. It's so hard to have compassion for ourselves, even though that's part of our work that we offer and we provide self-compassion to our clients and everyone around us. And there's another kind of just a misconception just about what self-compassion even is, because what I hear from clients at least a lot is, Ooh, that feels like, you know, all just like fuzzy wuzzy. You're trying to be, you know, just give yourself a pass. What if I like, I'm letting myself be lazy or it sounds like giving up or it feels like woo woo. And I think even as clinicians, sometimes we can feel that way. It's like, I need to be harder on myself when really that's not the point of what self-compassion is. Exactly. So I love that it's coming from two driven women who are, you know, maybe a little bit harsher on ourselves than we should be take out the word should whatever, but just coming from a very sort of practical angle and not, this will turn you into a puddle. If you Mm -hmm. even listen, you know, so maybe just to start, like, why are you talking about self-compassion? So in my early in my career, I was working at um, a university student counseling center, and that was you know pretty much my first clinical job as an anti dietitian, as an eating disorder dietitian. And you know this, and I know this that one of the biggest kind of roadblocks or kind of barriers we see with when a lot of our clients are stuck in eating disorder recovery or healing their relationship with food and body. I think at least what I observed is just how harsh people are to themselves, like the negative self-talk, all the guilt tripping, all the self-shaming and the self-judgment and the self-criticism. And of course, as human beings, like that's something that just resonates with just all of us too. We we always say like, don't be too hard on yourself. And so that when I came across the work of self-compassion through Kristen Neff, who is, you know, this big name researcher down at UT Austin, it intrigued me. And yet I also had those same kind of about what self-compassion is. And when I got to do a full two-day training with her, it was an experiential workshop. So when I got there, I was like, oh, dang, like I just wanted to learn the information and get out of there, but we have to do all the exercises like right on ourselves. But it was really life-changing in a way. And one of the first things that she said is the definition of self-compassion, right? Compassion just means to suffer with. It doesn't mean giving up. It doesn't mean just, you know, cover things up and pretend it's not happening. It's just being there and suffering with. And that's what we do when our loved ones are having a difficult time, right? And so it's like really offering that for ourselves. And so when I learned like that already was kind of opening the doors of what it really means. And then one of the male therapists who was co-leading the workshop, his name is Chris Germer. And when he said he wanted to lead a group for men, do a men's group on self-compassion, but he knew he couldn't call it that because even as, you know, as driven women, we think there's a bit of like, Ooh, that sounds too soft. And like, how would men feel in our culture? What would the idea of masculinity? So he said, I knew I couldn't call it self-compassion. Do you know what he called the group? What did he call it? True strength. Oh my God. I love that. That's definitely being the title of this podcast. We are not calling it self-compassion. People will not know what hit them. (laughs) And then throughout the two days, I got it. I was like, oh my God, this really is, this is what self-compassion is. It is true strength. This is what helps us get out of this self-criticism, the judgment and shame that actually keeps us stuck and overwhelmed in that stuck place. But 
by having self-compassion, by knowing how to suffer with ourselves and being with ourselves and practice self-compassion. And we can talk about like very practically, because I know you and I are both very practical and research-based people. And that's what I loved about learning about the science of self-compassion is that, oh, there are very practical things that we can do to practice self-compassion for ourselves that actually helps us create this bigger strength to get out of this self-shaming and self-guilt tripping cycle and to become the actual best version of ourselves. That's exactly how it works with clients who have difficulty with food and body relationships and in recovery with eating disorders as well. It helps you get out of that kind of stuck place. You know, our clients talk about being stuck all the time and time and time again, I see that when we are able to change our default self-talk with ourselves to a more compassionate one, it makes such a difference in how we can move forward in the recovery journey. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I also love the reframe or the calling it the true strength, because you're right that that is what it is. It's just sort of coming at it from a different angle. Now that we've sold it, hopefully, (laughs) let's talk about maybe, maybe first of all, what it is and what it isn't, because I know that you sort of touched on that, but maybe a little bit more definition and then specifically what it's not. So the first part of, I think what helps to define self-compassion is the three components, the three pillars that actually define self-compassion. There's three components to it. And I think that also helps clarify what it's not. So number one is self-kindness over self-judgment. So self-kindness is treating ourselves with this care and goodwill. It's a practice of goodwill. I love what they say that self-compassion is a practice of goodwill, not good feelings. And it's, so it's very intentional. It's very active about being kind instead of being harsh and judgmental, you know, and that's probably the first part of what self-compassion comes to people's minds, right? So it's changing our response to the difficult moments to be kind rather than judgmental. The second component is common humanity versus isolation. And this is another piece is that when we're having difficulty, when we get into this like negative spiral, we tend to isolate ourselves and think that, oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. And then like the darker we go into our holes, the worse we feel and the worse the negative self-talk becomes worse. When in reality, any difficulty we're having doesn't mean we're broken. It means we're human. Oh my God. I love that distinction. Yeah, we can change the idea that the reason why I'm having difficulty is because I'm human. Then we take out that, you know, there's no longer this, I'm wrong, I'm bad, I, right? And I think that's why group programs, group therapy works so well, because it really puts you in an environment where you're not just knowing in your head that there's probably other people who suffer with this. It's like, here they are right here with you. And that's why I love group programs and group therapy is because it really strengthens that piece of not being isolated and being able to see that my difficulty is not what isolates me or makes me different. It's what connects me to other human beings. And then the other third component is mindfulness rather than over-identification. Because again, when we're in this like self-deprecating like cycle, it's like we get so overwhelmed by it. But if we can, instead of getting, you know, so immersed in it, if we can create just a little bit of distance between what's happening, then that allows us to be like, oh, okay, this is happening. So you're acknowledging it, but instead of drowning in it. So it helps you not drown in it. So those are kind of the components of, it's like acknowledging, whoo, like this is a difficult moment and I'm not alone. And 
that's why I can offer, you know, kindness to myself to suffer less. And that's the whole point of self-compassion is it's focusing on the experiencer, the person who is going through the pain. And I think we forget that when we talk about kind of mindfulness, because mindfulness is like, oh, you're being, you're, you know, acknowledging what's happening, but it's not really focusing on the sufferer, like the person who is like suffering. And hopefully like acknowledging all of that kind of helps us think that, oh, it's not just giving up or covering things up or being just, you know, acquiescent because it's by doing these things like allowing that this is a difficult moment and here's what I can do to get out of this actually helps us, you know, move forward and not stay stuck. And that's not being vain. It's not being, you know, like self-conceited because I think often that can also confuse us with what self-compassion might be. Yeah. And I think also what you're saying is that it's not being falsely positive or just like always have these affirmations for yourself, which is great to have a positive spin on things. It's great to have affirmations, but we're saying when things suck, like don't pretend that they don't suck. That's not going to help. It's allow yourself to be there, acknowledge that you're there, connect with other people and move through it. Exactly. Because no change can really happen without first acknowledging that this moment is not what I want. This difficulty is really difficult, right? This moment really sucks. Like you said, without first knowing that what is painful, we can't do anything to get out of the pain. What do you think happens when somebody, (laughs) I'm asking as if like, I'm asking you to guess, but when somebody doesn't have self-compassion or doesn't think this way, allow themselves to, I guess, tap into their inner strength or whatever, their true strength. Like, why should I do this? Because I think what helps to answer that is to understand what happens to our bodies when we're under self-compassion versus when we're being mean to ourselves. Because when we talk about, oh, we shouldn't be too harsh on ourselves. It's like, okay, like that makes sense. But you know, that's not the kind of person I am is what a lot of people might say. Oh my God. Yeah. That changed for me when I learned about kind of what happens to the body's physiology. And then it made a lot of sense, especially as a science-based person. And so the opposite of self-compassion is pretty much self-criticism. It's negative self-talk. And to really highlight that what happens is when we are being mean to ourselves and harsh to ourselves and saying like, I mean, we talk about food and body healing. So let's talk about a practical example of when my clients say, oh, I ate a quote unquote bad food or I ate too much. And then I had all this like negative self-talk that you're disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself. All this mean self-talk, right? And what happens in that moment is you're triggering your body's fight or flight system. Because what happens, we we know about the fight or flight system, but it's the body's nervous system that helps us get out of danger. Right? And so let's say if we ran into a bear, let's say, and I know that in the modern world, that doesn't really happen a lot, but what our flight or flight system does is if you run into physical danger, it rushes your blood to you know your heart. You have higher adrenaline levels and cortisol levels, and that helps you do these quick actions to scream and to run to get out of danger, right? And by doing that, your nervous system protects you from this immediate danger, right? But in the modern day, we're not under a lot of this, you know, physical threat situations, hopefully. But you know what? Being mean to ourselves, these emotional attacks that we put ourselves through by being mean to ourselves activates that same fight or flight system. And that system 
should only be activated for a short period while we get out of danger, right? And then we want to calm down because if we're activated like that all the time and operating in survival all the time, it's going to be so chaotic. But that's exactly what being mean to ourselves does. Your body can't tell the difference between a physical attack and an emotional attack. And when we're talking critically and negatively to ourselves, we're activating that system. And it's even not good for your physical health to always have this high levels of stress hormones, high levels of adrenaline pumping all the time. And the opposite of it is the nervous system. I love this nickname that people don't know about often is the rest and digest system. Oh, like the opposite of the fight and flight. Yeah. And even if we put it in the context of food, when do you think, you know, will the body will like to, what state of the body do you think the body would like to be when we're eating and taking care of ourselves, <laughs> this fight or flight mode or rest and digest mode, right? Because right, if you're I'll running, leave you to figure that one out. <laughs> if you're running from a bear, your body's probably not going to think about let's calm down and like digest this food and get the nutrients from it. Right. And so by being self-compassionate, like you're triggering your body's rest and digest system. It's taking down the stress hormone levels. It's taking up, increasing the body's feel-good hormones like oxytocin that helps us like calm down to be in this state where your body is actually able to think rationally because you don't have to think about running away from a bear. And so by doing that, we can make kinder choices. And so that's why like we should care about this is because clients will often say, well, once I get out of that moment later, you know, two weeks later, when I calm down and I'm sitting here in session with you, I'm able to think like, okay, like here's what I could have done in that moment. But in that moment, I couldn't think of any of the tools and the skills that we talk about in session. My brain was just completely out of whack. And that's exactly why, because your body's fight or flight system was triggered. And that's not going to allow you to use that rational part of your brain. And as you know, a lot of our perfectionistic or type A clients, not to generalize everybody, but we know that there are certain traits in a lot of our you know, eating disorder and clients who suffer with this have difficulties with these areas. And it's hard to use those rational, the skills, the tools that we know are helpful in these emotionally aroused moments. And that's what really self-criticism does. And that's why it doesn't serve you or me or anyone for that matter. Yeah. And then I'm sure that there are long-term health ramifications, like physical health consequences of being in this fight or flight long-term perpetually. So even just sort of narrowing this down to either somebody who is an eating disorder recovery or somebody who has a disordered relationship with food, somebody who knows about intuitive eating, anybody who falls under that bracket. How can we use the ideas of self-compassion in healing our relationship with food? And I ask this even specifically thinking about the definition of intuitive eating is a self-care framework. It's not a diet. It's not only, I mean, yes, it's, it's teaching you how to develop a healthier relationship with food, but it's so, so intertwined with this. So how can you bring the two together and actually work toward a healthier relationship with food? And so I think, you know, the practical ways of doing it can be in two areas. And one is there are some very practical ways that we can practice self-compassion on two different levels. And one area that I love teaching clients about is even when you don't feel like it, there are things that you can do. Yes. And so here are the very practical things because 
there are two kind of approaches to it. And one is by using the body's physiology. And then the other is practicing how we talk to ourselves. So let's start with the body's physiology part, because this one, a lot of our clients can do even when they don't actually feel like being nice to themselves. And so the self-compassion research shows there's three ways to trigger the body's physical self-compassion system, that rest and digest system that we talked about. And those are warmth, physical touch, and soothing voice. Oh, interesting, which directly mirrors the pillars that you had indicated earlier. Yeah, yeah. When we're in this like fight or flight, like aroused state, when we're going like, oh my gosh, I'm so disgusting. I should be ashamed of myself. I feel so guilty after eating all that. We're kind of in this like mental panic mode sometimes, right? And we can use the body's physiology. And if you think about what first responders do when they first go meet people in crisis who went through like physical attacks, what do they do? Who like, you think about like any disaster movie, when the first responders show up, they wrap you in a blanket, they give you like a warm cup of tea and tell you that it's going to be okay. There's all the three components right there. You're saying, so the movies have like something based in reality. There's something that actually <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> like, sometimes like what we do, the things that we do in common sense, there's actually like wisdom embedded in there of like why yeah. humans need to do those things, right? And so just wrapping ourselves under blankets and drinking something warm, taking a hot shower. This is why we crave like giving and receiving hugs with from loved ones, you know, cuddling with your pet. These are all utilizing these things of physical touch, warmth, and listening to maybe, you know, that's why also guided meditations, listening to mellow songs help us calm down is because of that soothing vocal part too. And so we can mm -hmm. use any combination of these three to trigger the body's self-compassion system, even when, you know, mentally we're not really able to access that kindness in ourselves. But that is also a part that we can practice because sometimes people think, oh, that's just not the kind of person I am. But in reality, self-compassion is not something that you have or don't have, or that you're born with or not born with. It's an intention that needs to be set over and over and over again. It's a practice. So it's something that we can cultivate, I think is the hopeful note there. And even for myself, that's been true because I always felt like I needed to be hard on myself that I'm not going to continue to advance unless I continue to push myself. When in reality, that's a surefire, surefire way to burn out, to get disappointed and to never really feel good enough because there's another piece that um, a lot of us as human beings suffer with is not feeling good enough, that not feeling like I ever meet, you know, standards. And by practicing this component of kindness that I'm not being weak, I'm actually giving myself a safe space to grow is what self-compassion is. And when we have that safe space, we feel safe to try hard things to try again. Because if you think about it, if you had a best friend who came to you and said, you know what? I set the intention to do this, to do X, Y, and Z, because I know it's going to be good for me. And then I didn't do it. I suck. You know, I'm a failure. What are we going to say to them? Are we going to say, you're right. You suck. You're a failure. <laughs> That's terrible. Are they feel, you know, are they going to feel that they want to try again? Are they going to feel motivated? Or are they going to feel encouraged? No. And yet we think that's going to work for ourselves and it doesn't. And so, you know, how would you talk to yourself if your dear loved one, your best friend, your spouse, your child came to you and said all these mean things that you say to yourself, how would you respond? So that can be one of a good way to practice that self-compassion to ourselves. And oftentimes when I ask my clients, 
how would you feel if your best friend talked to you in the way that you talk to yourself in the moments of difficulty? And they'd be like, oh, that would, you know, that would not be very nice. I wouldn't want to be friends with them. And yet that's how we talk to ourselves. I like that question better than the other way around that. Would you say this to someone else? First of all, most people are anticipating that question and they're like, don't ask me what I would say to someone else. I know I have a very different way of responding to other people than I do, which is sort of typical. You know, the person we're talking to will have anticipated our questions, but thinking about this in the other way, if I actually heard this coming out of someone else's mouth and not mine, then how would I respond? Because it is still you. So I, I love that thinking about it slightly differently. Yeah. And so whatever really helps us to break out of our default negative self-talk, like, because of course, how we talk to ourselves is probably not going to change overnight and it's going to take practice. It's going to take intention. And so just taking a moment to pause and say like, wait a minute, that sounds really mean. Even if we can acknowledge that, that's a huge step to break that pattern. Yeah. Maybe it might be helpful to talk about even a specific example to sort of walk someone through. And I'm thinking specifically of somebody who first starts out with either one of us or just a hypothetical person that's not sold on this yet, even if they've already listened to the beginning part. Because like you said, it's not gonna just take one conversation or one episode or overnight to change. So somebody's coming in and, and say they have really poor body image and they just sort of like really, you know, I'm fat, I'm disgusting, I need to lose weight, I all these things that they say to themselves all the time. And I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that or have a history of that. And they want to heal their relationship with food, but every time that they turn to something that again, quote unquote bad, or they binge or something, it's just sort of the same cycle over and over and over again. So there's the food piece, there's the body image piece that just comes, and then there's the perfectionist piece of, I'm not good enough, but I have to be perfect. And perfect is the only good enough, but obviously I'm human, so I can never be perfect. You know, that whole cycle. So where would you say someone should even, not even should is obviously what we're trying to move away from. Where can someone start? And maybe even in terms of mindset, what would you tell someone specific who's experiencing this? My first question would be, so how has their current way of talking to themselves serve them. What happens when you are in that moment of this self, you know, kind of deprecating negative talk, when you kind of attack yourself, what happens after that is what I would ask them. And I think a lot of clients will say, well, it's like, I already failed. So I might as well continue on, might as well go out, punish myself further. And finding themselves in that cycle over and over again of like, now I really messed up. Now I need to even take it a notch higher to even be more perfect. And it's a vicious cycle that we can never get out of. And so by helping someone identify what actually happens and if that has worked for them, because it's you and I both know that it's never going to be us telling someone that this is what they should again do. Right. Yeah. And so if that hasn't worked out for you, if that only led to more feeling even worse about yourself and continuing to punish yourself in the direction that you really don't, that's not what you truly want, then how about, how would it feel to just, you know, try something differently, right? To see what might happen, just treat it as an experiment even. I love that. I sometimes say, especially with intuitive eating or any part of the eating disorder recovery journey, 
you can go back to doing whatever you were doing before, as long as you try this for however much time and really, really giving it your all. So we're seeing this as an experiment and you can go back to restricting binging and purging after if it totally fails. Exactly. You can always go back to being mean to yourself. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. You always have that option. Always have that door open. Should you want to go back? (laughs) And often what people say will happen is in that moment, it's just a continued like negative spiral that doesn't really like lead to any changes that they actually want. Right. Did it actually make you happier? Did it make you feel better about yourself? Did it make you love yourself more? And it's usually no, no, no. And those are actually the things that they want. They want to improve their relationship with food. They want to feel less critical about their body. They don't want to have a negative relationship with themselves. And so a great way to start breaking that pattern is to be open to even acknowledging, you know, the difficult moments and changing your response to it. That's what self-compassion is. It's changing your response to the difficult moments. And you've already tried being mean to yourself in difficult moments. And so here's a different way that we can try. And what often happens is if we are able to kind of calm ourselves down a little bit in that moment by being kind to ourselves and regulating our body's nervous system, then we can get back into our rational brain, which is a lot of what these people love to do anyway. It allows... There's another perk. (laughs) Yeah, there's instead of going like you suck, you suck, you fail. It's like, oh, oh, that's difficult. Ooh, I'm in this moment again. And this is kind of icky. And I wonder what happened. I wonder why I benched. I wonder why I was triggered. Oh, it's because someone made a comment on this. And then I felt bad about myself. And then I panicked. And then I went into binge mode to distract myself. Oh, okay. So that's why I was triggered. That's why I wanted to do this. But then I ended up feeling uncomfortably full and that didn't feel good either. So now here I am and I have two choices. I can continue to be mean to myself or I can think about, hmm, what can I learn from this moment? And how can I feel less bad in this moment? That's it. You're not giving up. You're not just saying what happens is okay. You're just saying, Ooh, this is difficult. I wonder what I can do to feel better. And when, can I, when I can feel better, then I can troubleshoot and change how I respond to those difficult moments next time. And that's really where the true strength comes from. Yeah. I'm also thinking about logically, again, if we're thinking about this rationally, it makes no sense for us to talk to ourselves this way. Because if we're thinking about what actually moves the needle in your relationship with food and recovery at work in relationships with literally everything is, is to be more self-compassionate is to be more reflective is to be more present. And there's no place again, in this rational equation for this. So where my mind goes is if this makes absolutely no sense, there's still got to be a reason that we don't quite understand for why it's here. So I sort of add this as an addendum to the end because I don't think that approaching this is the only way. I think it's maybe like a little part of it. But sometimes I think about if I'm holding on to something that really isn't serving me, then there's sort of what cues to me is a little bit of ambivalence. So I might be scared of what it means to let go of this way of speaking to myself and not actually that I'm scared, you know, of what my life might be like if I was actually nice to myself, but unpacking that. And I want to hear some of your thoughts also on this, unpacking what might be scary about speaking to yourself this way. What might it mean about your past, about the different messages that you've internalized 
Because until we really understand where something comes from, we don't really have a full picture in terms of fighting it. For sure. And there's just fear. Let's just normalize the fear that change is scary. And even when things don't work, what's familiar feels safer. And so definitely we want to acknowledge that and that any change, even when we know it could be good for us, is going to be scary. It's going to be uncomfortable. And yet, so fully acknowledging that and offering the compassion in those moments as we hold that safe space for our clients and acknowledging that by taking this small step, that's where growth can also happen too, because growth doesn't happen in the safe zone, in the comfort And so if we can just feel safe enough to take a small step outside of the comfort zone to see what it can feel like, to see how it could potentially better serve us, maybe that can, to even take the small steps to getting there could be helpful, especially for those clients who are just really scared to get out of that familiar zone. Yeah. I think we can also take that piece of advice for basically everything on this journey. Absolutely. Do something that feels a little bit out of your comfort zone, but safe enough. And this is sort of where specific food challenges can get so, can feel so chaotic, where if you go way beyond what feels comfortable, it just turns into this like whirlwind of chaos. So just a little bit outside your comfort zone and push yourself a tiny bit so that you know that it's going to be sustainable. Yeah. And I think another helpful piece there could be For people who are more used to suppressing negative emotions. We don't know any of those people. (laughs) (laughs) Right? When we're used to, when someone's default mode is to suppress and cover the negative emotions and push them away and not really face them, when we start to acknowledge the pain, that in itself can feel like a lot, right? we often use this example of a backdraft, like when a firefighter is going into a house that's burning on fire and they open the front door to put out the fire first, that like influx of oxygen that comes from the outside to the inside may look like the fire is getting bigger. And that's what backdraft is. And that's often what can feel like for people who are more used to covering up the pain, covering up the negative emotions, just acknowledging the pain can feel like, oh my God, this is, you know, it almost feels like it's making it worse, but we have to, and as clinicians, we can help people acknowledge, well, it's not creating more pain that wasn't there before. It's just allowing us to see the pain and we have to be able to see how big the pain is in order to take it out. That's true. And then, you know, also for a plug, It's also a a place where working with a dietitian, working with a therapist, working with a team is going to be so valuable because you'll have a support system built in to help walk you through this. More firefighters to take out the fire kind of in a way. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I can link to all of your resources and some of the resources that you mentioned if anybody wants to learn more. But before I let you go, first of all, thank you so much. This was really enlightening. I love it. And I also love how you put it into such like organized detail for those of us who come in rolling our eyes and I am loving it. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. Yeah. Before I let you go, can you just let our listeners know where they can find you? Yeah. 
So my website is foodbodypeace.com and I am most active on Instagram and my handle is also foodbody.peace, anti-diet dietitian Mia Kwan. That's where you can find me. And Mia is M-Y-A, guys. (laughs) Thank you for that. I know it's very misleading how it's spelled, but M-Y-A, Mia. I love that spelling. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.